Welcome to a special episode of Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. The pace of life seems for many to be increasing at rates that often lead to significant amounts of personal stress. As many of you know, I am a big advocate of intentionally stressing your turf to maximize its performance, but of course there are limits. Limits that, when exceeded, can result in catastrophic loss. As professionals, we have expectations to perform from some of the most discriminating clientele in the world, the American golf. These expectations, real or imagined, can raise the stress level if not kept in perspective. This episode is about giving yourself a break, filtering the noise, recognizing your mental health, and leading a purposeful and fun organization. I'm joined by Peter McCormick, president and founder of TurfNet, David Kuypers, commercial operations manager for Syngenta Canada, Chris Tritabaugh, the golf course superintendent at Hazeltine National Golf Club, and Paul McCormick, the general manager at Fox Meadow Golf Club in Prince Edward Island and author of the Mindful Superintendent blog found on TurfNet. My first guest, Peter McCormick, founded TurfNet 25 years ago. I asked him about his leadership of TurfNet and how his personal experience has served as a compass in his professional life. This is a tough business, you know, regardless of, of what aspect of it. But, but let's focus on the golf course superintendent, which is our primary um, interest anyway. I guess if I were to boil it down, one of my interests over the last 25 years has been to help superintendents keep one foot on the ground while they are managing and, you know, doing all the stuff that they need to do uh, for the golf course, which is obviously a around-the-clock responsibility, at least thinking-wise. Their brain's constantly going. I like how you went there. I, I, what did you mean when you said one foot on the ground? What does that mean? I mean, I, that's a metaphor. What did you mean when you said that? It's easy to get lost in work, which has a cost, a personal cost, a family cost. Sometimes a career cost if you really have the blinders on. I tried to make TurfNet a fun place and a place where uh, we can be very serious uh, when called for and also goof off a little bit when we need to and blow off some steam. We don't do jokes and have never done jokes, but I've always tried to support the interests and avocations the hunting, the fishing, the recipes, vacation destinations, good places to stay. You know, it's very very common for somebody to say, hey, look, I'm going to such and such a city. Uh, what should I do? What should I see? Where should I eat? Where should I stay? That mm-hmm. kind of thing. And, and there's always been a place for that at TurfNet. So how, how much of your own experience in this business led you to that wanting the foot on the ground. I mean, you obviously had a front row seat to how difficult the business was for many, many years. It wasn't by design, but it did evolve. How much of it was from your own interests that this is how you felt you had to take care of yourself. And therefore that meant maybe the industry could benefit from it. Well, one of the early things that that I would have to point back to would would be um, the fact that in two previous lives of mine, I had rather abrupt career changes, uh, not of my own choice at the time, but so I got fired twice. And both times were uh, one time more than the other, but were very different or very difficult emotionally, psychologically. I don't know whether it's a result of that or what, but I I have had my own personal challenges with clinical depression for years, and I just felt that it's very important for me to sort of wear my heart on my sleeve and talk about the things that have worked for me, helped me move along in life. I guess I'm in a unique situation where you know, being sort of self-employed. I mean, I started the business myself, sold it in 2001, but still manage it. And I still consider it my own business, sort of as an entrepreneur and sort of a guiding light or visionary or whatever you want to call it. Do you think that's the case? We really need these mental health discussions more than we're having them? There's no doubt. I first wrote about depression in the industry back in, I think it was 99, at the behest of a superintendent uh, who was struggling with it himself. 
And I, it resonated with me because I was right at that point in time, I was just identifying the fact that I had challenges as well. So, you know, that was almost 20 years ago. What was it that when Paul approached you about this made it make sense for you? Well, I think one of the key things was that he emphasizes slowing down, filtering, uh, maximizing your signal-to-noise ratio, if, if you will. In other words, you have to decide in today's day and age what you're going to pay attention to, what you're going to involve in your life. Equally important is what you're not going to. He just seemed to be, I, I met him years ago up there. He had also been fired just before I met him. And this had to be 10, 12 years ago. He's been writing for us for about eight years, I think, eight or nine years. It just seemed to be, hey, it's great content. It's going to resonate with some people. A lot of other people might say, what the hell is this? You know, but that's okay. You know, it, it's, that's good. If it ultimately, if people ultimately come around to find value in some way, shape, or form in what somebody does, then then it served its purpose. As we do this episode, one of the things that I think about is is the courage it does require sometimes to say something different and do something different and care for yourself differently. And and I guess you've really tried to do that with TurfNet. I wonder, as we wrap up, if you feel like you've been a success doing it. I always use the analogy of uh, when I started TurfNet, you know, there was nothing like it. Nobody had the, the gall to charge for information. And, and it was a new concept, and it was, it was the most difficult thing I've ever done from a, from a challenge or a, or a courage standpoint. I always used to say it's like sticking your ass out the bus window and let everybody who wants to come along and take a whack at it. Anytime you you voice a new opinion and uh, suggest a new methodology, uh, you know, admit to taking care of yourself before the golf course, maybe, uh, you're opening yourself up to uh, challenge and, and or ridicule in some cases. And, and that's difficult for some people to do, not so much for others. And the thing that you're hearing is only the sound of the lost high heel boy. My next guest is David Kuyper. He's been a friend for many years. When he was a superintendent, we learned from spending time together, we both test out in psychology tests as introverts. I know that's surprising to many listening, but I can say honestly, I get my energy from being alone. David speaks candidly with me about how keen self-awareness and accepting yourself as an introvert can contribute to career success. I've been fortunate all through my career. Coming to Syngenta, we're very intentional about sort of understanding our strengths and weaknesses and the things that not only we thrive off of, but the people that report to us. And so, you know, very much the language of Syngenta is kind of your personality profile. We use DISC, being a high C or a high D, and the ability to draw your energy from contact with people and how to communicate and how to have difficult conversations with people and understanding their frame of reference before you get into one of these conversations is critical as a sort of vehicle of communication. And from my perspective, again, I've always been pretty introverted my whole life. I helped. I had a mother that was introverted. And the thing I always had going for me, my family or my mother never felt, made me feel like there was something wrong with me, which is unfortunately for most introverts, they kind of grow up thinking that they're kind of defected somehow because they're not extroverted. There's something uh, wrong with them because you don't want to do what everybody else is doing, so to speak, or you're, you know, what they find fun, you don't find fun at all. In fact, you find uh, the opposite of fun. It's almost, it definitely feels like work. It's just a matter of understanding what you can and can't do. But, uh, but then at the same time, from a professional context, you can't use your introversion as some kind of crutch to be rude or to be uncivil to other people. So it's just a matter of, you know, having an accurate view of yourself and how you get into these things, and avoiding the things that you know you're not going to find fun and aren't necessary. But then, and I think this is kind of where we have our common ground, the conversation started, is you have to understand 
what you need to do professionally, you know, fulfilling your responsibilities in a proper way and how to get that done as an introvert. And I don't think I found it any more challenging than your professional life in general. It tends to be challenging all by itself. But the interesting thing is to listen to you talk about the transition you've made to Syngenta, where there was a lot of emphasis, and I imagine this is in almost all corporate structures, that you know you really need to assess yourself as a professional, as a person, and try to work to your strengths. But back to your days as a golf course superintendent, that isn't probably what's happening in most operations. I mean, can you imagine a superintendents sitting around with their two or three assistants saying, okay, let's take a personality test and see how we can all work together. Does it sound funny or does it seem like that's something we should be doing more of? You're right on all counts. Never did it before. Just kind of sort of figured out how to, how to manage. I think you're starting to run across it more and more and the more progressive operations do it or the ones that are owned by bigger corporations probably do something like that just because it is so effective as you get into it. and But you're correct. You see it manifest itself in, if you think about the traditional view of the golf course superintendent, I can't remember who, I think it was Dave Shag, who was the longtime GM at Country Club in Brookline. I might be misquoting him, but you know, I remember he had a presentation that he put up the movie poster of Shrek and the golf professional was, of course, the princess and, uh, but the golf course superintendent was the ogre. And that's kind of the historical stereotype, if you will, kind of like off in some other part of the property. Nobody really knows where exactly, uh, where he is or what he's doing. And, and unfortunately, you know, the traditional thing is unapproachable sometimes. And uh, that's changing, I think, for the better, obviously, and as out of need. But absolutely, I think, you know, that's kind of why introversion the tag gets laid on them is because, you know, golf course superintendents are generally not to be found. I do think that has changed pretty dramatically recently, but the, I hate to bring it up because I really dislike the movie, but the Caddyshack image right. of the golf course superintendent as a lone wolf off in some foreign part of the golf course that nobody really knows where they are or what they're doing. So, you know, you mentioned earlier that your mom was introverted as well. And so you, sort of didn't see it as something wrong with you. And on this episode of Frankly Speaking, we've really been honing in on, you know, reflecting on our own uh, mental well-being and our mental health. And it, it sounds like that really laid a good foundation for you to be mindful of your own worth, regardless of sort of what you needed to take care of yourself, that you were this way, your love, regardless of it, and therefore, you you know, you always impressed me to be an enormously, other than playing football, uh, you've been an enormously well-grounded uh, professional. How much do you think sometimes when they lash out at people or being a lone wolf or being viewed as an ogre isn't because we're not taking enough care of ourselves, that we may in fact be a whole profession of a lot of introverted people who are grumpy having to interact with people because they're not taking care of themselves. Again, that might be foreign to you because you've had that sort of sense of yourself for a long time. But do you see that out and about a lot that it looks like we could be a little bit more reflective about taking care of ourselves? Yeah, I think you're sort of working in two big buckets here. I mean, from the importance of caring for yourself and as a golf course superintendent, understanding where we are and what we are doing and to not be kind of overwhelmed. That's a critical piece of caring for yourself and really just having that accurate sense of yourself. I mean, the the nature of the job as a golf course superintendent, it's incredibly complex. It's actually the opposite of what sort of historical grass farmer sort of stereotypes. You know, you're talking about budgetary pressures and, and weather pressure, which is constant and then you add on top of that, you got labor challenges and regulatory pressure all over the place. And on top of all of that, you've got the incredible complexity of all the stakeholders in your world, whether you know, you're talking about a private golf course or even a, a daily fee thing. The expectations of the customers vary dramatically across the spectrum, and it's impossible 
literally impossible to please everybody at any given time. And golf course superintendents, I'm sure everyone within the sound of our voices has been told probably every season that the golf course has never been better and or never been worse. And I'm sure there's a certain percentage of them that that's been the same day. <laughs> and and with that sort of underpinning the whole thing, it could be a source of incredible anxiety professionally if you're sort of unmoored from your own reality that is actually going on, right? I mean, one of the commitments I've made to myself, even when I was a golf course superintendent and I continued, is, you know, you want to have an accurate view of reality on a day-to-day basis. And <laughs> if you can do that for yourself and achieve that, then you aren't thrown to the waves, if you will, of, of sort of the, the last customer or the last golfer that you've spoken to, which is critical in that job. And it's been useful to me as I, as I go through, you have to have, uh, you know, what Warren Buffett calls your inner scoreboard, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, when the golf course is good and you know, when it can be better and you know why, and you know what the plan is to move it. And so when some group of golfers stops you and either, tells you the greatest thing that ever happened to the golf course or perhaps the worst, it doesn't really matter. It's just kind of noise because if you've got yourself sort of grounded properly, then just taking customer feedback for what it is. That's right. If you don't do that, it's a roller coaster ride of emotion, which would just be a nightmare. Well, an inner scoreboard or inner center or whatever it is, that place inside of you that tells you the truth no matter what. And even if that truth is, is really good, sometimes I think we have a hard time. We're, we're often very critical of ourselves, and, and it's hard to find that sort of inner scoreboard or even know where to look. And recently, we approached you about supporting a retreat that we held at Prince Edward Island, and you were kind enough to rally that support within Syngenta Canada to make it happen for 12 professionals in this business to go out to Prince Edward Island and and think about these uh, issues with regard to caring for ourselves and and in your way, either inner scoreboard or or inner center that tells you, you know, you're okay uh, just the way you are. and, And here's the things you need to really take care of yourself to be a better professional. When we pitched you this idea, David, it didn't seem like it was a hard sell. You seem to have a sense of the importance that this industry needs to place on our own well-being. Can you talk a little bit about what that meant for you to be able to support it and even sort of boast about it within Syngenta as being important for well-being? I know Syngenta has a real commitment to the well-being of the golf course superintendent supporting the 5K recently down in San Antonio and, and that well-being mantra you guys had Did this fit nicely into that box for you? It did, certainly. I mean, big Syngenta, sort of globally, one of the critical pillars we have is focusing on the customer and and helping them solve their problems, right? That's what makes us valuable in the industry or all the industries that we work in and and to our customers. And, you know, as you come down the the chain, uh, obviously that takes on different manifestations. And, And like you said, you know, in the turf space, the customers that we have in golf, it's an incredibly unique profession. And, um, you know, as we touched on, it it can be lonely and there's a lot of sources of anxiety. And unfortunately, the men and women that do this job tend to do it with a great level of sacrifice to their own, their own health in a lot of ways, mental health or physical health. Right. And so, we're certainly willing to support anything that's just another way to equip the golf course superintendent to address their problems and whether they're professional or, or personal. And so obviously the best way we do that is through the core business, which is continue to just innovate technologically from a chemistry space to, to solve problems. But Gent is a big operation and it has access to a lot of resources and access to a lot of things. So if we can do supplemental things that can further a uh, golf course superintendent's ability to, to solve their problems and to address the things that challenge them. I mean, some of these things are a little more practical. Uh, superintendent University up here in Canada or the program that grew out of that in, in the United States, Superintendent Business Institute. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are, you know, a little more practical ways. But, I mean, if it's things like your physical health and your mental health, it's an important thing to support and it's an important message to send. And it touched on earlier in our conversation 
it's a resource that I have access to as a as an employee of Syngenta. We're very concerned about basically being a good place to work and being a responsible employer and providing our employees with the things that we need to grow and succeed and be healthy and happy while we do our jobs. And typically the industry golf course superintendents do not have access to that. So if there's a way to do it, and in the case of Prince Edward Island, the work that Chris and Paul do along with you, you know, I've crashed a couple of different sort of seminars that they've been working on through the past couple of years, in addition to knowing them both personally, obviously. So you knew that the you know, they have a high level of empathy and a high level of understanding of what the specific challenges of a golf course superintendent are and that they would uh, deliver an authentic program for the group that was going to gather out there. All right, let's take a break. We'll get a message and we'll come back and continue this conversation. This is Frankly Speaking. I'm Frank Rossi. True plant protection comes from within. Civitas Turf Defense is more than a fungicide and more than an insecticide. It's a plant protection product that works within the plant to produce strong, healthy turf. With a chemical structure that resembles the natural paraffins found on leaf surfaces, Civitas Turf Defense takes an entirely different approach to turf management, a proactive one. Applied preventatively, it works with and through the plant to stop threats from taking hold in the first place, reducing the effect stress has on your turf. Civitas Turf Defense enhances IPM efficiencies and lowers costs by reducing the turf's requirements for inputs like water, fertilizers, and other pesticides while helping to maintain the quality of your turf. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Golf course superintendents all agree, traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water filtration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone, all at the same time leaving the turf surface smooth and playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you. There and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. Paul McCormick has been an important person in my life from the minute I read his blog, then spent a few minutes with him. Paul has become an outspoken leader of the role of improving mental health using mindfulness techniques for golf course superintendents. We chatted about where we are now as an industry. How do you feel the Mindful Superintendent blog has both contributed to the community but also contributed to your own uh, mental health. It's funny. Originally, the blog was completely my wife's idea. My wife, Jill, told me a long time ago, back in about 2008, 2009, that eventually I would be writing and superintendents would be listening. And I, at the time, thought she was out of her mind and didn't really believe her. (laughs) But as I started the second phase of my career and I reached out to Peter and he was gracious enough to just allow me the platform to just start noodling and start kind of putting these ideas somewhere that I thought that people could reach them and needed to hear them. And it's developed. It's funny. I look back at it the other day, just to the beginnings of it. And I was reading through one of the first or second blog posts ever. And I thought, that's it. Oh dear. That's all I did. (laughs) And it's grown in such an amazing way over the last number of years. I think it's about five years now to the point where I get regular correspondence with people that I never, ever figured I would have been able to reach. So it's just been so wonderful that way. And so, you know, it seems to resonate on two levels. One is that connection that you found now with so many in our industry that feel like there isn't a place to reach out for this help. But I want to talk for a second about what it's meant for you. Like we, we have become more close personal friends in the last several years. Uh, I think much of it is, is our, the challenges both of us have faced uh, with our own mental well-being and emotional well-being. 
And so how, how does writing about it and now being a voice for it, how, how does it work for your own well-being? I find the biggest factor in writing and then now more recently speaking is the vulnerability and being far more comfortable at this stage of my career with being vulnerable. Because when you write about things that are very personal and when you get up on a stage and talk about something like a panic attack or something like completely breaking down and getting fired from your job, it allows you to move past it in such a powerful way and just have it as part of your psyche and part of your makeup, but it doesn't own you anymore and it doesn't control you. And I think that's where so many people get locked up in this industry is they get fixated on just a certain way of being all the time. And I find the writing has given me a platform just to be something completely different. And it's made such an incredible difference in I, what I turn the second phase of my career, really, in that it's allowed me to explore personal issues. It's allowed me to really flesh out ideas that I've learned through studying mindfulness and practicing meditation and then kind of having that conversation with the self I used to be. And then writing, I, I read something the other day, talking about writing the things you needed to hear or you need to hear now. And that, I think, has been one of the most powerful parts of this vehicle for me. Do you think that for most of us, and, and, I, and I think this is, a, it feels like a guy thing, but I could be wrong, that vulnerability, expressing that vulnerability, that place where you started uh, your answer to the question, isn't sometimes that the hardest first step to make because we have to fight a little bit about our, our, our gender. We have to fight a little bit about the culture of our industry. And we also have to fight a little bit internally about exposing parts of ourselves that might make us look weak to some people or look wounded in some ways. Isn't that the first big step and one that we consistently see most people struggling to take? There's no doubt about it. Um, I found just over the last year in particular, so many conversations that I've had with people that just suffer alone. And they just never had someone in our industry talk about vulnerability. And I mean, it's not just me. It's, it's starting to be more prevalent and more accepted in the industry, which is, I like to think, TurfNet played a big part in opening that portal. And I think as people get by the gender thing, get by the maleness, but even the female side of things, like even the people like Leisha Schwab and Mo Robinson and, and those guys, they have their own struggles. And, and even just being a woman in this industry is struggle enough as it is sometimes. And so I think if we can all just get to a place where that vulnerability is not a sign of weakness, it's actually a sign of empowerment, and it's a sign that you are comfortable enough with yourself to start a conversation that every one of us needs to have and that we're not alone. Is there some part of you that wonders, huh, if I'm, if I'm vulnerable, I can't just put my head down anymore and work the hundred days in a row and... Oh, I won't be successful if I don't work those hundred days in a row. And there's a, a way I have to do this job that, yeah, I just don't have time to be soft or, or vulnerable or meditate. And how would you answer some of that, that you can't be vulnerable because, gosh, you just, you know, you've got to get this golf course in shape for the next hundred days. I think really for me, the whole mindfulness side of things and the meditation and the vulnerability, it's actually allowed me far more space to be a better superintendent, not the other way around, as you were speaking. Like, mm -hmm. there's still times where you have to put your head down and you have to focus and zero in on what you're doing on the golf course and you have to be immersed in it. But I think the pitfall that so often we get caught in is we forget to climb back out of that pit sometimes and we forget to step away from it and that's been the part that I think finding that space through the vulnerability through the pausing that's allowed me 
to just take a different viewpoint and actually be a far more successful superintendent. I think we were speaking the other day, and you asked how the grass was this year, and I think I did less this year than I've ever done, but it was the best year I've ever had as far as growing turf. So it really speaks to that same minimalistic tendency that has through, flowed through architecture, through through greenkeeping, through guys like Chris, like less is more, but doing things better. And I really think that this is a whole side of it that just allows you to kind of release the energy that you use so often keeping things pent up and just allowing that energy to flow in a much more productive way. How much do the people in our lives play into this? You know, you talked about your wife picking up initially. Maybe you should start writing about this. Uh, I know we've had experiences with people who uh, relationships in their lives have, have been problematic or, or that uh, a spouse has said, hey, you know, you need this. How much do not just the the intimate relationships we have with our family, but our work relationships, the people who we work with, how much has checking in with them been important to helping you come to realize the importance of this part of our career? Well, there's no doubt having friends or a spouse or someone that you can count on at the end of the day is huge. And my wife, Jill, through it all, God bless her, has been there. And been there in a way that has both directly and non-directly, like just given that nudge to say, hey, it's kind of gone too far this way, or hey, I really appreciate what you did yesterday, or just those simple things. And, And really, for me, it's all about presence, and it's all about feeling present when you're home, and then actually using that same presence to be the best leader you can be at your golf course as well whether it's talking with golfers, whether it's talking with your staff, whether it's interacting with the clubhouse staff, treating people like real people and having that human interaction makes you a far better leader in the long run and is going to make your job easier just by default because you're not creating tension in relationships and and you're not reverting back to unhelpful tactics to cope and get to right through the day. But you have to be willing to be open to listen to somebody tell you, hey, this isn't going good for me. Hey, mm-hmm. you don't seem to be doing so good. And a lot of times I find that puts me on the defensive. How have you worked around some of this stuff where, you know, people call you on your stuff and you don't get defensive? I think the big factor with that is being able to separate your behavior occasionally with who you are as a person. Mm -hmm. And I find for me, that's been a really powerful, intentional message that I've tried to foster over the last few years is someone can call me out on something, like my wife being the perfect example of just the gentle reminders of, hey, things have gotten a little out of hand or have gone a little too far with your sleep or whatever. I used to get so worked up about it and get defensive, like you said, but now I can go, okay, thanks for that. And just be grateful that you actually have somebody or you have a good friend or you have somebody that can point out to you when the pendulum has swung a little too far one way or the other. And then you can separate your internal self from you just making a bad choice or behaving in a way that wasn't really kind of close to your character. And and you just simply start over. That's another really, really powerful one. And you just start where you are and start over again right. and, and just let it go and go, okay, you know what? Yeah, I apologize for that. But now I'm going to just kind of move forward and get through this together. And so I know you're having experiences with the Mindful Superintendent blog beginning to resonate into the industry. And it culminated recently in a... Uh, supported uh, mindfulness retreat that we had uh, at Prince Edward Island, Paul, that you led for us with Chris. And I want to just talk not just about that specific activity that we did and not just about your blog and not just about your speaking engagements, but how those are now all measures of the message beginning to resonate in this industry. If you had to sort of talk about the keys to why you think the timing is right now, Uh, What would you say? I think now more than ever, there's a lot of things kind of 
coming together in our industry that people have been seeing from a long way off in some respects, things like climate change, things like expectations, things like the recessions or the economy or and a lot of things that we're looking at that can cause anxiety if you kind of let them get ahead of you. And I think more than ever, especially in our distracted society that we live in right now, our hyper-connected society and how everything is 24-7 with regards to news and social media and every, all that jazz. And I think people need the space to step out of it sometimes. And I think superintendents are no different than teachers or lawyers or doctors. Society as a whole is responding the same way in that sense that we're not 100% certain that we're, we've evolved to this space as humans that we have to just be hyper-connected all the time. And I think when we can step out of that mindset and when we can pause and when we can give ourselves space to recharge, it just feels better. And I think that's what people are starting to appreciate and starting to realize that it doesn't always have to be the latest, greatest app or the latest, greatest technology. It can actually be something very, very old and very, very human in the sense that just being together, just having space to yourself for reflection, and just giving yourself the time to recharge actually are all incredibly important tools that we can use, not just as superintendents, but just as people. And it seems to a certain extent, Paul, as we wrap up, that by stepping back a little bit, it's sort of another way of leaning in. No doubt. And again, that the whole leaning in comes back to that vulnerability and not suppressing it or not running away from it or not using something to cope. It's really just training yourself to just be and just be there as much as you possibly can be. And when you're present and when you're vulnerable with anything that happens in your life, eventually over time, it creates those relationships and it creates the kind of life that I think everyone wants to live. My last guest, Chris Tritabaugh, thrust onto the golf industry stage at the highest level during the Ryder Cup in 2016. He's passionate about the need to care for yourself and how that can translate into making work purposeful and fun. So, Chris, you made quite a bit of headlines in the Twittersphere this year about taking a nap and how you had to justify that uh, in so many different ways. And it was so fascinating to watch that conversation evolve. What is it about, you think, the nap that got everybody all worked up? You know, I've, I've thought about that a little bit. It, it, it is pretty interesting in that um, I, think, I think what happens is, you know, we're in this industry where we work for people who are oftentimes very successful you know, certainly at a private club, that's the case where you have this whole group of membership that's successful. And I think it's it's over time. This isn't something that happened all at once, but over time, it led us as superintendents to have this feeling that for every single minute of our day, especially if we're at the golf course, and then even times when we're maybe away from the golf course, that we have to be on our game doing doing everything without ever taking a break from being in charge of the golf course or responsible for the golf course. Because we're worried that, you know, we have these multiple different people who are all judging us all on the golf course at the same time. So if that makes sense, I think that over time what that's led to is this idea that, well, we can't ever just stop and rest and take this break from what we're doing. I think that that's where that came from. And certainly there were a lot of people who read that and understood it and thought, oh, this is great. Um, maybe they do it themselves or maybe they are just interested in the idea of doing it or they see somebody who's, who's at a club that, of, of this nature who does it and they think, oh, well, that's really great. I want to I do that. But then there's others who they don't work like that and they can't imagine that, boy, if I ever stopped and, and took a nap during the day, what an appalling waste of time that would be. And um, they would be judged by whoever it is they work for in a, in a very negative way for doing so. So you're not judging yourself that way, and yet you're doing it. Why? 
Well, I'm not judging myself in that way, which I think is, is something that we need to look at in this industry is, is how do we judge ourselves? And I just say the simple phrase of we need to give ourselves a break. And, you know, whether it's a physical break, like taking a nap, or whether it's just the idea of like, you know, when you say to somebody, give me a break, you know, <laughs> you got to give yourself a break in this stuff. You know, you're going to screw things up. You're going to do things wrong. Um, you're going to make the wrong decision at the wrong time. You're going to say the wrong thing to people. And sometimes we just need to give ourselves a break and understand that that type of thing is going to happen. When it comes to a nap, the, to me, that's a physical break, you know, and, and I find myself, look, I, I've done, this is 12 years now I've been a superintendent and then years as an assistant and crew member for that time before that. There are times during the day when I, I'm just exhausted and, and just need a break. And I know that if I continue to push through that for the sake of I'm just going to do this and I need to be conscious and, and doing what I do all the time, that I'm not going to be nearly as effective as if I stop, lay down on the couch that I have in my office for 20 minutes and just take a rest. And then I get up and, and I'm 100% better and I'm right back where I need to be. So so how much of the resistance to doing it or the, the folks that say, boy, what a waste of time or the folks that uh, might be listening to this and say, what do you mean need a break? You know, I'm betting paid to work. Yeah. How much of that sort of hard driving judgment on themselves then makes their way into the way they operate their organization? I would say a lot of it. You know, if you're not willing to give yourself a break in the ways that I mentioned earlier, then why would you give your crew a break in those same types of ways? And by break, I, again, I mean a physical break, sitting down and stopping work for a few minutes. But I also mean all the other things, you know, people making mistakes and people not doing things exactly the way that you might have envisioned it. If you can't do that for yourself, then how are you going to be able to do that for others would be my feeling. Yeah. And, and isn't that the nature of, you know, the hundred hour work week as a badge of honor, if you will, the the saying that I've been really uh, mindful of lately, we wear the way we work consistently as a badge of honor and not giving ourselves a break. I'm wondering, and I wonder if we're all starting to question, is that actually a sign of a dysfunctional organization? Well, certainly there are lots of places that have a lot of success doing things just that way. And so it would be, it would be not right for me to say that that's, you know, dysfunctional because I don't, I, I can't say I've worked in an operation that's of, of that type, but I just wonder, you know, how sustainable is it from a standpoint of, you know, all the way from the top down to the bottom, even if you are being successful in that manner, what, you know, what are you giving up to get to that point? And, you know, if a person doesn't mind giving up other aspects of their lives that are going to be lost in working like that, then I guess that's okay. And they're probably going to then cultivate a, a, a group of people around them who are also going to think like that. And if that works, then, then that works. And there are lots of places where that is the case. But I certainly don't want to work like that. And I think that more and more as time goes on, the people who are coming up through this industry don't want to work like that. So, again, I would ask the question, is that sort of environment sustainable from a standpoint of your own personal well-being and then, you know, the well-being of others, but also being able to attract people to, into your operation. You know, I don't know the answer, but it would seem uh, that that will diminish as time goes on, that sustainability of that type of operation. Well, and I think the point you made there about it being attractive uh, is one worth noting. If we're going to attract people to this industry, especially the next generation of professionals, my sense is a lot of these young people are thinking about uh, their whole life, not just mm -hmm. all the time they're going to spend at work, that there there is this quality of life. But in the back of my head, you know, I, I feel like I've got the two angels on my on my shoulders here, Chris. I, I hear what you're saying. I got to take care of myself, mm -hmm. give myself a break, yep. set a, a nurturing culture in my operation. But on the other hand, I'm like, oh, you know, I can't let down, you know, you, you work at a very competitive place where people play mm -hmm. competitive golf uh, on a regular yeah. basis. It feels yeah. like that, that, that angel, that angel, if you will, on the other side of my shoulder 
continues to bark at me. Well, you go that way, you're going soft and, you know, the place yeah. is going to fall apart. The conditioning yeah. isn't going to be as good. Oh, worse, the members are going to find out you're taking a nap. And next thing you know, <laughs> you know, you're yeah. down the road. So yeah. how do you answer that voice and that, you know, exists in many of the professionals in our, our mm-hmm. business, many of them wildly successful? What do you say yeah, to that voice? For sure. That's probably the number one reason why people don't, okay, let's, I'm going to say this again, give themselves a break. It's because they feel like if I give myself a break in all these areas, then the course is going to suffer. Then, you know, we're not going to be as good. And then the staff isn't going to be as good. And they're going to see me taking a break. And they're going to see me being easy on myself. And they're going to see me leaving at the end of the day. And they're going to go, oh, well, I can do the same thing. You know, that was a question that came up in that whole discussion about the nap is, well, what about your staff? So you're doing this. Are you allowing your staff to do this? And my, my reply to that would be, yes, I am. You know, if, if they want to take a break at lunch and they're in here during their lunch hour and, and a nap is something they want to do, then sure, that's fair. But to answer your question and to get into what, what you are saying about, you know, does the quality have to suffer? I think that that's why people wouldn't stray away from this idea, this mindset, is that they think that the quality is going to suffer. But it it doesn't. And when people ask me, well, how can that be? And I think it's, it's because of the type of culture that you have. I mean, we talk about that all the time. We have this expectation when people come to play golf at Hazeltine, it's a little bit like, I don't want to sound pretentious saying this, but it's a Disney World-like type of thing where people are going to, because they stand on that first tee and they go, okay, they hosted Ryder Cups and PGA Championships and U.S. Open, and this is going to be great. And it's going to be, wow, this is going to be fantastic today. I'm so excited. Just like when people go to Disney World, they want it to be that way every day. Nobody goes to Disney World and like, well, I can see they're working on stuff and half the things are closed today. Nobody wants it to be like that. And that's what it is here. So the expectation every day is that we're going to be really great. And we talk about that all the time with the crew. Like, let's, let's enjoy what we do and let's really do a great job at what we're doing. And we can do a really great job and sort of, um, but make sure that we're all sort of looking after our own well-being. And I think to me, the enjoyment of work is the key to all of this. If you set out to say, our number one goal is that we want to create an environment in which people enjoy coming to work, that, that you are going to win all of these various battles that you know we're trying to win on a daily basis. Because people who enjoy work are going to enjoy what they're doing and they're going to do inherently do a better job and they're going to care more about what they're doing. And, and that's it. For us, that's the key is let people enjoy what they're doing. And they'll do great work if that's the case. It's very simple to say that, but um, we find that to be the case with our group. And now that you've been a little bit more outspoken about this nationally, uh, you know, presentations, interviews, obviously, you know, the work that you did with the Ryder Cup a, a number of years ago. I mean, obviously, the pushback you got from the NAP comment and and was one aspect of it, but what is a big, what's one of the obstacles that stands in the way for us? Uh, I know you said people are worried about the conditioning, but I'm wondering if it's that we're just not very good at taking care of ourselves. We look at work in a particular way that, you know, just by definition, work uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> requires some sort of exertion. I wonder what the big obstacles are. And if the biggest one isn't, we just don't know how to take care of ourselves so that we can't take care of our organization the right way. I, I think that's probably it. It probably, it has to start with the person who's in charge and they have to have the respect to themselves. As I said before, to, to kind of give themselves a break, to look after their own well-being, because then that will trickle down to the other things. I mean, I, I look at myself and I think I, I, my life is fairly balanced. I spend time with my kids. You know, certainly they, they like to say, Oh, dad's always gone during the summer. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm more busy during the summer than a lot of um, people are. But, you know, I feel like we, I just spent the whole Christmas break with them. And I stay home, and I've done that the last five, six years, is when they're out of school, then I just am home. And, you know, it's, it's easy to do in winter here in Minnesota. But, you know, it's things like that. And But I think if, we, if we're not looking after that, and our concern is, okay, well, my self-worth and my worth to my club the people that I work for are going to see me as more valuable if I'm busy and I'm always at my desk. And, you know, I sometimes think about the old Seinfeld episode where George Costanza uh, <laughs> decides that he's going to, he's going to look frustrated, you know, because of that, his boss is going to be like really impressed. Like, Oh man, Costanza's 
he's having such a hard time and he's so frustrated. He must be really working hard. <laughs> and I think we probably do that. You know, we think, well, if I look really busy and if I look like I'm really sort of beaten down and I'm, you know, I'm tired and I'm worn out, um, that people are going to think, wow, he's really working hard and, um, probably are, but you know, at what, at what benefit and, um, you know, how much harder do you have to work to get the results, um, positive results when everybody else is like that? than if you, you know, sort of create a culture of enjoyment and, and that just makes everything so much easier. Well, and I think inherently there's so much wisdom in what you're saying, because for me, I've always really liked the grind of this business. I'm a baseball mm-hmm. fan. I like long seasons, you know, mm-hmm. where one game doesn't necessarily matter very much because you're going to wake up the next day and you're going to play another play one until you're 162. And, it, you know, yep. so so there's a part of me that's the kind of person that's attracted to this business that likes that grind. And I think it's really easy, Chris, to not take care of yourself because of yep. that grind and yeah. so you know, I found, and I think this is why we're having this podcast and why it's all coming together is that you can like the grind, but don't neglect the things that you have to do to take care of yourself. And then you're saying that I hear in your messages by doing that, you got a better shot at having uh, an operation that's going to function uh, more effectively over a long period of time. I think absolutely. And, you know, something I've, I've noticed is I'm a huge sports fan. So I like it just much like you, you love baseball. Mm-hmm. I love all sorts of sports. I love soccer. And I've just, I've been a follower of Manchester United and a fan of them for, for 15 years. So it's, it's, you know, since 2003 and they just recently changed their manager and they went from a authoritarian manager, somebody who was, who was dictating exactly the way that the players should be playing and what they should be doing and how they should be doing it. And you saw as time went on, this is two and a half years, the players just started to shut down and they weren't playing well and they weren't trying and they were, you know, and a lot of people were criticizing the players because they're saying, well, they're not playing for the manager anymore. And they probably weren't new manager comes in. And basically all he does is say to them, go and enjoy yourselves, go in and express yourselves and play the type of football that you would want to play and enjoy yourselves. That's it. That simple message. And bang, they're just like off and running. And these players who are awful are playing really, really great. And sometimes, I think it's that simple. Like if we just say to the people that work for us, just enjoy being here, enjoy spending time with your friends, enjoy the jobs that you get to do on the golf course, you know, enjoy being part of something that creates this great product. That it's amazing um, motivator for people to want to do a good job, their own personal sort of pride in what they're doing. And when you're not standing over them saying, do it like this, do it like this, do it like this. And when they don't do it that way, you go, what are you doing? Why aren't you doing it the way that I told you to do it? I'm shrinking that down into a very, you know, sort of focused manner of thinking about it. But that's it. It's this authoritarian way that really makes people not work effectively. And if you pull that back and you say, hey, look, have a great time. Enjoy what you're doing. We want to do a great job, but, but most of all, we want you to enjoy being here. All of a sudden, that that great work that needs to be done to really get a great product, it just happens naturally. My thanks to Peter and David, Chris and Paul for taking some time to join me on Frankly Speaking. Take a minute and reflect on this information. Give yourself a break. Have some fun. You may just find you are your best self when you take some time for yourself. I'm Frank Rossi. Thanks for joining me.